Today is Wednesday, November the 23rd, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, and that's prn.live, L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. NASA Mojo is back as it launched Artemis rocket. The mission overcame scrub launches, hurricanes, and late launch pad drama to kick off a key test of America's ability to send astronauts back to the moon. Artemis 1 is heading towards the moon, blazing a trail for NASA's next era of space exploration. NASA's new rocket soared into space for the first time in the early hours of Wednesday, lighting up the night sky and accelerating on a journey that would take an astronaut-less capsule around the moon and back. For NASA, the mission ushers in a new era of lunar exploration, one that seeks to unravel scientific mysteries in the shadows of craters in the polar regions, test technologies for dream-of journeys to Mars, and spur private enterprise to chase new entrepreneurial frontiers further out in the solar system. At 1.47 a.m. Eastern Time, the four engines on the rocket's core stage ignited, along with two skinnier side boosters. As the countdown hit zero, clamps holding the rocket down let go, and the vehicle slipped Earth's bonds. Less than two hours after launch, the upper stage fired one last time, to send Orion on a path toward the moon. On Monday, Orion passed within 60 miles of the moon's surface. After going around the moon for a couple of weeks, Orion will head back to Earth, splashing down on December the 11th in the Pacific Ocean, about 60 miles off the coast of California. The launch occurred years behind schedule and billions of dollars over budget. The delays and cost overruns of SLS and Orion highlight the shortcomings of how NASA has managed its programs. The next Artemis mission, which is to take four astronauts on a journey around the moon, but not to the surface, will launch no earlier than 2024. Artemis 3, in which two astronauts will land near the moon's south pole, is currently scheduled for 2025, though that date is very likely to slip further into the future. The agency has had to explain why it is going back to the moon now, more than half a century later. Haven't we been there and done that? The Artemis II mission, which will fly four astronauts around the moon, looks a lot like Apollo 8, and the Artemis III mission will not be all that different from the Apollo 11 landing. This time is different, of course. NASA will send its astronauts to the South Pole rather than the mid-latitudes, because there is potentially ice there, and the agency has plans to conduct long sorties on the lunar surface and perhaps eventually build up a settlement. NASA wants to do all of this lunar exploration more sustainably 
with the help of commercial space companies like SpaceX, to bring down costs and leverage powerful new capabilities, and as its astronauts spend time on the moon, they may possibly learn enough about the lunar environment and living in deep space to make missions to Mars a feasible next step. But this is really difficult to explain when you have a rocket that looks a lot like the Saturn V and a spacecraft that looks a lot like the Apollo capsule, and you're using them to fly back to the moon. For a dozen years, NASA has had to talk about all the great things its deep exploration program would accomplish. It is so much more straightforward to show people what you can do rather than tell them what you're going to do. And now, NASA can point to this mission and Orion's forthcoming flight as the first steps towards a greater vision that is powerful, perhaps more powerful than the 8.8 million pounds of thrust blasting off the launch pad on Wednesday morning. If all goes well, Orion will spend about 25 and a half days in space, testing out the propulsion system on the server's module and its ability to survive a long-duration spaceflight before splashing down in the Pacific Ocean on December the 11th. However, a satellite that launched aboard SLS is already in trouble. Japan's space agency has been unable to communicate one of the two CubeSats it launched earlier this week as part of the Artemis 1 mission. The launch of NASA's Artemis 1 mission sent the Orion capsule on a journey to the moon in addition to 10 CubeSats included as secondary payloads. The Space Launch System upper stage successfully deployed the tiny satellites, but one of them appears to be malfunctioning. Orion wasn't alone when it left Earth for this historic trip. A total of 10 low-cost QSAPs were tucked inside the SLS upper stage, each designed for different missions to study the Moon, Sun, Earth, and a nearby asteroid. After Orion separated from SLS to begin its journey towards the moon, an upper stage adapter sequentially deployed each CubeSat using a timer according to NASA. The CubeSats were developed by various organizations, including the European Space Agency, that's the ESA, the Italian Space Agency, the ASI, and the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA. Four of the CubeSats are dedicated to the studies of the Moon. Southwest Research Institute will track the Sun's particles and magnetic fields. Japan will image Earth's plasma sphere. Marshall Space Flight Center will head to a near-Earth asteroid with the assistance of a solar sail. BioSentinel is designed to study the effects of deep space radiation on living organisms, while Team Miles' mission will demo a propulsion scheme using plasma thrusters. The European Space Agency Argo Moon has already done its part as it observed the cryogenic propulsion stage that set Orion on its course towards the moon. Each CubeSat has a different time frame for communicating with its designated ground controllers. So far, six CubeSats have sent a signal to mission operators. Unfortunately, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, but the Omatashi, seems to be experiencing an issue. The space agency put out a short statement earlier saying, Equulius is A-OK, but the Omatashi has not completed sun acquisition. 
meaning the tiny probe hasn't referenced its position relative to the sun, which is needed for stabilization. What's more, communication is not stable. JAXA added that the space agency is continuing operations to stabilize attitude, secure power, and establish communication. But the Omatashi is designed to land on the moon and explore its surface as the world's smallest lunar lander, a distinction that will have to wait. It's not clear how or if Artemis 1 launch delays affected the CubeSat's electrical charges. NASA officials said ground crews were able to recharge 4 out of 10 CubeSats while the SLS took shelter inside the vehicle assembly building on account of Hurricane Ian. The officials did admit that one unnamed CubeSat had a low state of charge that would impact its ability to achieve its mission, and that the other CubeSats were sufficiently charged. Hopefully, Omotenashi will spring to life, and that each CubeSat will eventually sign in with their respective bosses. NASA is back. Your iPhone usage data is not anonymous. Apple says your iPhone usage data is anonymous, but new tests says that's not true at all. Your iPhone analytics data includes an ID number tied to your name, email, and phone number, says researchers who uncovered other holes in Apple's promises. A new test of how Apple gathers usage data from iPhones has found that the company collects personally identifiable information while explicitly promising not to. The privacy policy governing Apple's device analytics says that none of the collected information identifies you personally, but an analysis of data sent to Apple shows that it includes a permanent, unchangeable ID number called a Directory Services Identifier, or DSID, according to researchers from the software company MISC, that's M-Y-S-K, and Apple collects that same ID number along with information for your Apple ID, which means that the DSID is directly tied to your full name, phone number, birth date, email address, and much more according to MISC tests. According to Apple's analytics policy, personal data is either not logged at all, is subject to privacy-preserving techniques such as differential privacy, or is removed from any report before they're sent to Apple. But the MISC test shows that the DSID, which is directly tied to your name, is sent to Apple in the same packet as all the other analytics information. Knowing the DSID is like knowing your name. It's one-to-one to your identity. All these detailed analytics are going to be linked directly to you, and that's a problem because there's no way to switch it off. The findings worsen recent discoveries about Apple's privacy problems and promises. Earlier this month, MISC discovered that Apple collects analytics information even when you switch off an iPhone setting called Share iPhone Analytics, an action that Apple pledges will disable the sharing of device analytics altogether. Days after Gizmodo reported on MISC tests, a class action lawsuit was filed against Apple for allegedly deceiving its customers over the issue. Theoretically, Apple might argue that an ID number isn't personal information, but the European Privacy Law, which sets the standard for data regulations worldwide, 
defines personal data as any information that directly or indirectly identifies a person, including ID numbers. The findings are especially damning given the years Apple spent rebranding itself as a privacy company. Apple's recent marketing campaigns suggest that the company's privacy practices are supposed to be far better than other tech companies. It emblazons billboards across the country of the iPhone with a simple slogan, Privacy, that's iPhone, and ran the ads across the world for months. Your iPhone usage data is not anonymous. Hackers' latest scam tactic, call back phishing on subscription charge. Don't fall for those emails telling you about a subscription charge. Callback phishing is all the rage for hackers today. Hackers are stepping up their attempts to lure people in calling them to try to reverse fake payments and charges. A campaign by a group known as Luna Moth and Silent Ransom Group has cost victims hundreds of thousands of dollars and is expanding its scope, has been reported by the cybersecurity firm Palo Alto Networks. The warning comes as Americans face relentless scam calls and get little relief. By doing callback phishing, attackers prey on victims' desire to not get billed for things they didn't purchase. Callback phishing schemes have revolutionized data breaches. Palo Alto Networks has responded to several cases involving Silent Ransom and Luna Moth. The group has shown particular precision, Palo Alto Networks said. This threat actor has significantly invested in core centers and infrastructure that's unique to each victim. Early on, the group would use recycled phone numbers, but it has begun to use unique phone numbers now for each victim, limiting the ability of victims to easily detect whether they're malicious or not, Palo Alto Network said. Silent Ransom and Luna Moth is an offshoot of the notorious ransom gang, Conti. The cases involving Silent Ransom and Luna Moth that Palo Alto Networks worked on show a clear evolution of tactics that suggest the threat actor is continuing to improve the efficiency of the attack. Cases analyzed at the beginning of the campaign targeted individuals at small and medium-sized businesses in the legal industry. In contrast, cases later in the campaign indicate a shift in victimology to include individuals at larger targets in the retail sector. How does it work? Hackers have been using callback phishing since at least 2020 when the ransomware gang Ryuk began employing it. A target receives an email saying that they'll be billed for a subscription or payment. The email gives a phone number to call if they have any issues. When the target calls to dispute the charge, the call center purportedly walks them through steps they have to do on their computers. Instead, the call center actually gets the target to download a tool that give attackers remote access to their computer. Once inside a victim's systems, the attackers can steal an organization's data and hold it for ransom. How is it evolving today? Callback phishing has seen an extraordinary burst in frequency of late. From the beginning of 2021 to the second quarter of this year, callback phishing increased by 625%. Malicious hackers carrying out the schemes are shifting their thinking to be more targeted 
and sophisticated in trying to hit specific victims. The attackers have gotten more sophisticated in their tricks. Earlier versions of callback phishing relied on victims downloading malware. Silent Ransom and Lunar Moth, by contrast, doesn't require its victims to download any malware at all, with the hackers instead relying on commercial tools designed to let IT administrators to get remote access to computers and other publicly available tools. That can make the hackers harder to detect because legitimate tools are less likely to set off alarms with traditional antivirus products. Callback phishing has been far more precise than ransomware's random and repetitive targeting. Hackers have created phishing messages that are tailored to specific victims. It also less reliant on technical expertise, instead focusing on human fallibility, and hackers have taken notice. We can't win the technology war because on this ground, we compete with billion-dollar companies, but we can with the human factor, said one Conti member in internal communications. It requires more resources. It requires a threat actor to allocate someone to take the call with the victim, walk them through downloading the remote assist software, and keep them on the line long enough to install the remote management software. These attackers would also need to have business operations set up to track things like a reference number to have the details of the campaign against the victim, including name, email, amount, and service they sent a phishing email saying they're subscribed to. In trying to come up with a way to defend the attacks, cybersecurity researchers are also turning to the human factor. Since there are very few early indicators that a victim is under attack, employee cybersecurity awareness training is the first line of defense. The FCC is cracking down on ringless voicemail spam. Companies will need your permission to leave silent messages. You're not the only one tired of ringless voicemails that put spam in your inbox. The Federal Communications Commission has determined that these silent voicemails are covered by the same Telephone Consumer Protection Act rules that forbid robocalls without consent. Companies need your permission to leave these junk messages as they are still considered calls. The FCC says the ruling takes effect immediately. The findings come five years after marketers first asked for exemptions to the regulations surrounding ringless voicemails. The request from all about the message and two other petitioners reportedly drew overwhelming negative feedback from public commenters. The commission added that it receives dozens of complaints about these voicemails each year. FCC Chairperson Jessica Rosenwasser proposed extending the Telephone Consumer Protection Act to this spam in February. As with other robocall crackdowns, there's no guarantee the voicemails will stop. Spammers may find alternate avenues to deliver these messages, and the FCC can only do so much to limit spam originating outside the United States. However, this does establish firm boundaries inside the country. Companies who flout the rules risk FCC action and customer lawsuits that could prove costly. The FCC's new, more accurate broadband maps may lead to improved coverage. The new data is key to the $42.5 billion in high-speed internet grants. 
the Federal Communications Commission has finally published a new broadband maps after a protracted development process. The pre-production draft release, as the FCC described it, promises much more accurate representation of fixed internet coverage across the United States. Earlier maps would only show service at the census block level, sometimes ignoring large gaps in real-world connectivity. The new maps are accurate enough that you can search by address to see which carries are available, including the maximum claim speeds. The updated maps could help would-be subscribers make more informed choices about broadband service. They'll also theoretically add market pressures to internet providers who may have considered an area served if just one home in a census block was connected. Now they may be compelled to flesh out coverage in a town or neighborhood. The data could also prove crucial to the federal government's funding strategy. The United States has yet to portion out the $42.5 billion in broadband spending from the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure law. With more accurate maps, officials can now make better informed decisions about where that money goes, and it may be particularly important for upgrading rural broadband, which has historically been inconsistently available and slow. The FCC cautions that there's more work to be done. The draft status indicates that the mapping work is far from over, according to the regulator. The agency warns that this may only be effective if there's constant input from everyone involved, ranging from customers through local governments and companies. Poor updates will render the maps ineffective, in other words. There are also questions surrounding long-term funding and policy. While the bipartisan infrastructure law may help, there are no guarantees of further commitments in the years ahead. The broadband maps only promise to show where coverage falls short, and it's up to politicians, regulators, and companies to address any shortcomings. So if you're interested about this new map that the FCC has, do a search on FCC Broadband Maps. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about you, your computer, the workplace, everything that's going on in regards to IT. Now, Billy asked me a question. How do I know if my employer is monitoring what I do? What are they monitoring? How serious is it? And here's here's the question, or rather the answer, that you don't want. We have no clue. <laughs> the, I, I, you know, I, I know that's uncomfortable. How do I know my if my employer is monitoring what I do? What are they monitoring? How serious is it? It's very serious. They're monitoring all kinds of different things. And uh, how do you know if they are? They may be, they may not be. See, this is this is something that does exist out there. This is something that is rampant in some industries and non-existent in other industries. There is this idea of metrics. The, the metrics are those statistics that talk about how successful or not successful a particular department is a particular company, or in the other direction, a particular employee. Some employees are measured by the quantity of typing that they do. 
Some are measured by the quantity of emails they send out. Some are measured by the amount of phone calls that they take. Some are measured by who knows. What's your CPU utilization and your computer? You know, I, I there are so many different imaginary metrics that people put out and they say this is going to tell us whether this person is successful or not or this team is or all employees and it's not a very valid approach some people are very good at communicating what they what they need to put across their emails are going to be far shorter their instant messages whether on Teams or Skype or whatever, they're going to be shorter than other people who put out veritable paragraphs, books, chapters of books in regards to simple requests. So it all varies. It's all going to be a little bit different for everybody. And then there's what do you bring to the company? And they have to put that against these different things. So this guy over here, he makes $10 million in sales every year for the company. And that's that's a good chunk of change. That is very successful for the company. And he does it with one client and he makes a phone call and that's all he has to do. He's generally unproductive throughout the entire year except for that one phone call. Do you get rid of him? Well, who knows? There's this other guy. He just goes and he makes 100 phone calls every week and he brings in $5 million for the company. And he's doing all kinds of different emails and he's doing all kinds of different communications. Which one do you keep? So these metrics actually build upon a fallacy that the harder worker is the better one. But how do you justify this? How do you even go forward with this? So we go back to Billy's original question. How do you know? You don't know. You can't know. If you knew, they would actually be gaming the system. That $10 million, that, that one guy who's doing $10 million, he's going to sit at his keyboard and he's going to send emails all day. And they're going to be worthless emails. They're going to be, he's going to just type up a book. He's going to turn into the next Stephen King when they lay him off because he will have had some 20 books that he's written. They won't have anything to do with the company, but there's no way to, I mean, there are ways to track that. So what are they monitoring? Everything and sometimes nothing. I don't give, going to that last question from Billy, how serious is it? I don't give a lot of credence to it. I don't give any level of validation to these ideas of employee monitoring. Yes, there are times where, yes, we can go for it. We can say, I know this employee is not doing well for us. Can you monitor them and find out what they're doing and why they're not being productive and why they're, you know, we're struggling as far as a company? Yes, we can do that. I've done that before. As an IT manager, I've been told, Yes, we need to we need to monitor everyone. No, we can't monitor everyone. I don't have the time to do that. All right, fine. Can you monitor this one employee? Sure. 
I can go through it and see what they're doing on the internet. I can see what they're doing as far as, uh, you know, on their system. I can see how many quotes they're putting out, how many different uh, documents they're reviewing, how many different, all of this. I can check into everything. Is it going to matter? That, that, that was one of the things I, origi- I eventually came upon the realization. I needed, needed to ask, is this going to affect anything? Is this going to change how we treat him or her? And the answer was, well, no, but we want to know. What, if, if it's not going to affect anything, why do it? But that's, that's kind of a mature IT organization approach versus, a, sure, we've got the ability to do this. We could, I would love to see how I can leverage this and do all kinds of cool things. I did find out. From my perspective, it turned out to be a time waster, at least for me, whether or not the other person was wasting time. But then again, that's my approach. That's my views on this. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Dr. Rebecca Mercury has been researching and writing about election technology since the late 1980s. Her doctoral dissertation was Electronic Vote Tabulation, Checks and Balances. She demonstrated that the correctness of vote tallies from anonymously cast electronic ballots is not provable, and further, that this problem is currently unsolvable in the field of computer science. Dr. Mercury has appeared before the House Science Committee, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, the Election Assistance Commission, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies, the UK cabinet, the Brazilian government, and numerous state legislatures. Dr. Mercury has performed also forensic investigations and provides expert testimony for criminal defense and civil legal matters. Hey, Rebecca, we've been longtime friends, and you've been a good friend of the Personal Computer Show, so I know that whenever I ask you the tough questions, you always gave me the straight, unvarnished answer. Now, back in the days when I voted, is with the mechanical voting machines. You remember in New York State, we had those mechanical machines? Oh, yeah. We had them here in New Jersey and over in Pennsylvania, too. And at the end of the day, the totals were read and submitted to the Board of Elections. And in turn, they added up all the totals from each of the voting machines. And by the next day, or no more than the next day after that, the results were available. Now we have computers. We still haven't have all the final results. How has technology made us better? Well, it's an interesting thing, and it's great that you bring up voting, you know, the old lever machines. Um, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on uh, voting systems um, and actually defended it 11 days before the Bush versus Gore <laughs> election. So it was an interesting time, but I have been researching that sort of stuff, especially including the lever machines, for decades prior to that. And well, what I always found interesting about the lever machines, and I'd spent a lot of time up in New York, by the way, because there were hearings and, you know, so I, you know, have intimate knowledge of the New York <laughs> voting system of that time, especially during the, you know, the lever machine era. And what was interesting about it was that you could cheat with those. There was always a way to cheat. The way that you cheated with a lever machine was that there was a little odometer. It was like a three-digit odometer for every single one of those levers. So you could go from zero to 999. Now, if somebody got more, you know, they couldn't have more than 
999 voters voting for a particular candidate. So, so it, it was limited at that. But the thing was, was that you could roll back these numbers and it was rumored, I never saw it happening, but it was rumored that because they had to roll them back at the end of the election to erase things. But what they would do in particular elections, again, this is what I heard from people who knew that this was going on, was that they would roll back the voting machine so that it would start at 900 for particular candidates. It didn't have to be 900, it could be 950. But whatever it was, that person would have to make up the deficit, or that candidate would have to make up that deficit in votes in order to even get zero votes. So let's say it was 950. There would be zero, you would have to push the lever for that person, you know, and do the voting. You would do another lever to get, you know, to cast your vote. Um, and you'd have to do that 50 times. In other words, people would have to vote for that candidate 50 times in order for it to register zero. But the thing was, the assumption would be that people might vote, you know, there might get 500 voters. So really, they would, let's say both candidates got 500 votes, but the one that was pushed back it would show up as 450. And how, why wouldn't you see the 900, you know, or that it was 950, was that, well, they would do it in the hundreds column. They would put a little tag on it that would show zero so, so the people wouldn't notice that that was actually happening. Now, the reason why I'm explaining all of this is because all of this is possible to be done with a computer. You could start by registering all of the candidates' votes as zero, but then the ones that you don't like, that you want to bias in an opposite direction, you would you would give them a lower number. It can all be done by computer, and it's much more instantaneous and less checkable. Yes, back to you. Let me just say that back 30 years ago, when I was doing a lot of poll watching, you didn't have to go through that effort because that is an effort to, that you got to go through to do all that fixing. The easiest was you had to record the numbers, and it was very easy for the one who recorded the numbers to easily transpose the numbers, and then you could say it's an honest mistake when caught. Absolutely. I mean, that was also still true um, because you would go to the back of the machines and everybody would stand around and record the numbers. But there was, if, you, if it's a legitimate election, they're supposed to be bipartisan poll workers and somebody would flag that the number was recorded incorrectly. As well, when you got back to the, the warehouse where these were stored, that would be detected. But again, if it was done at the warehouse, they wouldn't report that this was done incorrectly. So well, there, well, actually, Rebecca, there are ways uh, mechanically to do this. Well, let me just interrupt and say this, that in New York City, okay, there's a 10 to 1 uh, registration difference. With a 10 to 1, we would have Democratic uh, registered people doing the poll watching for the Republicans. Right. You would just change your party for that election. And again, that you know, I grew up in Philadelphia. It's a different city from New York. But these same games were played all around the country. And so what I, I guess what we're trying to start off this discussion in saying is that there has always been ways to cheat election technology, no matter what that technology actually is, whether it's paper ballots, whether it's, it's uh, computerized voting, whether it's uh, lever machines, whether it's electronic voting machines. But the the whole point 
of having the election system is that there has to be checks and balances. And so if you have, if you're casting your vote on an electronic machine and it's just going inside as bits into a cartridge, there's no way for anybody to ever be able to check that. Even the vendor, they can't check it. There's no way to check it. And so there's not a check and balance there. With the lever machines, you open up the back and you actually see you know, those zeros, you know, whatever it is, the numbers on the back and multiple people, presumably in a bipartisan situation, would report that, you know, the numbers being written down incorrectly. With paper ballots, and that's why so many of us, including myself, were pushing for paper ballots, was that with the paper ballot, the voter gets to see the paper ballot and they see, so I call it voter verified. A lot of people like to call it voter verifiable as if the voter is incapable of verifying their paper ballot, but it's called voter verified. I've always used the word verified because the the voter, whether they prepare the ballot themselves or whether it's prepared on a computer and it's printed out, they are supposed to look at it and verify that that was in fact what they chose. If it is not what they chose, then they have to go to the poll worker and say, look, this is wrong, or I made a mistake. I didn't really intend to vote for Nixon, and so <laughs> I need you to give me a new ballot. They call it a spoiled ballot. So there are ways to vote that... You know, if you make a mistake, whether you did it by hand or if the computer somehow recorded it incorrectly, when you verify your ballot, there's rules on the books that say that you're not changing it, you're voiding that ballot. There's a whole process for that. I've worked as a poll worker in numerous states and including overseeing elections, you know, just watching what goes on in numerous states. And there's always a way to void your ballot. Okay. So, so that's the most important thing. Now with the lever machine, you can see what levers were pulled down and then you're presuming that it's working correctly. When you pull that other lever across that it clicks those odometers up. Now, some people say that those lever machines were not necessarily working correctly, but you know, again, we have no way of knowing because you couldn't really check with regard to the electronic voting systems, there's no way to check, and we have no way to verify even the electronic scanners. We don't know that those are correct, and the only way that we know that the totals that an electronic scanner gives out are the same as those on the ballots is because we have to actually verify the ballots. And that's what Georgia did, was being intimidated by the president in reporting different results, but they actually, they were going to do just a partial audit, which I disagree with. They actually said these elections are too close. We are going to manually count them and we will see what the results are. And that's the way we do our checks and balances. If we have an electronic system reporting results at the end of the day or whenever they get around to doing it, we have to have a way to check those paper ballots to make sure that those vote totals are correct. And that's that's really what we really need. It's a system of checks and balances. And that's why why my my doctoral dissertation was titled Electronic Vote Tabulation Colon checks and balances. <laughs> Without the checks and balances, then it's just a free-for-all and anybody who has control can do whatever they want. 
Well, let me ask you a simple question, forward thinking. Do you think now that we have 10, 20 years of experience with electronic voting, that there will be changes made going forward? No. That's too simple an answer, you know that. <laughs> yes. I just wanted to make it emphatically as a no. And the reason why is because in the, well, it's over 30 years now that I've been looking at election systems and, you know, going to meetings and speaking at meetings internationally as well as here in the United States. I know that there are there are controls, um, people, individuals and entities are control in control of certain processes and and those processes are corrupt. Um, I served uh, I'm a longtime member of the IEEE in the the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineering. And actually, I was recently elevated to becoming a distinguished um, member of the IEEE, a distinguished contributor of the IEEE Computer Society in recognition for my work. The, the IEEE is one of the largest standards groups in the entire planet. And they have standards like, for example, the the phone standards, the telephone standards, the power standards in our country that we use. All of these different standards, the IEEE Standards Association is very important in creating standards around the world. As There are other standards organizations, but the IEEE is one of them. And so I served for about five years on the Voting System Standards Committee. And, you know, we would go to meetings every couple of months. And basically what I found out was that there were a number of vendors whose some of them even sent the president of their voting system. But this was this was for the voting system standards. We were working on creating a legitimate standard for voting through the IEEE. And these voting system vendors, I'm not going to name any names, but they would show up at the meetings as well. And they each had a vote. All of our votes were supposed to count equally, and they did. But they had enough people that they could send um, and get appointed that they wound up with their own coalition. We created our own coalition of computer scientists and engineers who were really trying to claim that the standards were inadequate. These are the national standards that they use to this day. They've updated them somewhat. But these standards are the ones that the vendors are supposed to comply with in order to get their voting system certified. I won't get into the certification process, but it's rather poor. But among these standards was one extremely important standard about the what we call the mean time between failures. As an engineer and computer scientist, we know that mean time between failures is like an amount of hours that whatever device it is should function properly, um, like your car. You know, they know that the the mean time between failures for certain parts is lower than for certain other parts. Like you might have to replace your lights more often than you have to replace your engine. So, but we make sure that this mean time between failures is a sufficient number to cover number of hours to cover 
the amount of time that this device is in use. Well, the mean time between failures for voting systems was so inadequately set to be something like 153 hours. Now, we know that on election day, okay, so election day might be 12 hours or 14 hours, but you have to set up the machines and stuff like this. But still, that's a rather paltry number. And and that doesn't include the fact that that machine is used in multiple voting things. It's being done in the used in the primaries. It's not that the mean time between failures is not cumulative. It is cumulative. And so it's not just for that one election. But if you set that number so low, that means that maybe after five elections, that system is going to fail. We could not get the committee to agree on a proper number for the meantime between failures. And so that's why I'm saying we have serious, serious problems with respect to the way our voting systems are created. And we can't really trust them. There is no meantime between fares for paper ballots. They're on a piece of paper. Unless you burn the piece of paper or use something to get rid of it, it's still going to be there. So that's why many of us like paper. Thank you, Rebecca. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And one of the one of the fun experiences I have, we we sit and we talk about a, a number of different things uh, off air. And he will go through and he'll say, OK, I've got this coming and I've got that coming. But I love I love just going through these. And I figured oh, we would. Attraction. Uh, yes. Yeah. I figured ah. I figured I would just do that. I would record this because some of these things, some of these things are just uh, interesting to me. This is the, the whole interaction. So uh, what, what do you have that's coming at us? What, do, what are some right. of the things that come to mind? E- ego. We just talked about their lawnmower and their 18 inch chainsaw. Yeah. They have a, a number of weeks ago. Yeah. Powered, a battery powered snow thrower. Oh, really? Okay. And this one, I've got a long driveway, gravel driveway. And if you had a single stage snow thrower, mm. you'd be spitting stones at every car in the neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> with, a, with a two stage, one stage lifts the snow, the other side blows the snow and the gravel okay. doesn't get picked up. All right. Yeah. Uh, this thing has a huge front maw. So you get an eight, nine, 10 inch snowfall. You're still going to draw it in. Nice. And, nice. And it's got skids, which are perfect for that driveway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That That's going to come in. I, I almost can't wait for it to snow. To sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I get snow in my area, too, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, the the same company, Ego, is also sending me yeah. a backpack electric leaf blower. Electric. Okay. Backpack leaf blower. It doesn't sound like you know uh, a euphonium in 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 a, a power amp. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, it, a it's, it's not a noisy blowhard, <laughs> yeah. but it is a blowhard when it comes to wind speed. And that, sure, okay, that thing is is going to blow leaves like nothing else. Uh, on the quieter side of things, cyber acoustics sending two new headsets. One of which, okay. uh, both both of which high quality are supposed to be good acoustic transparency, good fidelity to use an old Latin term. 
Uh, one of them is Bluetooth connected. The other is USB. And there are trade-offs there that I'll take a look at. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they also have a new USB-C laptop docking station. So that's kind of uh, Okay. Yeah. And something I just got in, tried this afternoon, in fact. Yeah. Is the NEG, N-E-G-G, the NEG egg peeler. It's a plastic cylinder with a snap-on top and a snap-on bottom. Mm -hmm. Okay. You take a, a hard-boiled egg, you put enough water into the bottom of this to just kind of fill the cap, not much more than that. You put the egg inside, you put the top on it, and you shake it vigorously. You shake it like there's no tomorrow for about 10 seconds. And then you take a look and you'll find that you've made a hole in the shell. Yeah. And the cracking has continued. And mm -hmm. how do I put it? Um, the uh, the shell slips off like a pair of pants that's two sizes too big. Okay. <laughs> All right. I've lost some weight recently, so I, I know what that's like. All right. So it's... Uh, I never thought we would be talking about an egg peeler on the show, <laughs> but but I, I mean, so there's but there's got to be a lot of tech and science behind that too, because somebody had to go through and I mean, you and I both know. I mean, it's it's visible. The thing has little bumps inside. Yeah, and it's not like you shaking that is going to be predictable. Yeah, yeah. But the one thing you can predict is kinetic impact against the bumps. Mm -hmm, yeah. And at some point, something's got to give. Well it's, it's, well, it's kind of like the opposite of the divots of a golf ball. You know, yeah. it, it, all of those little divots help it fly further. <laughs> yeah, we, we think, okay, yes, yeah. we think smooth, uh, smooth golf ball would travel faster or farther or whatever. Yeah, okay. Yeah, like, like my wife Judy says, it's just like when you're peeling egg under running water. Mm-hmm. The Except, water gets between the shell and 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 the white, and it sure. comes off more easily. But in this case, that shaking with the water already present, and it's kind of done it for you. Except when I'm when I'm doing that, I'm using like a gallon of water per per egg, and this is using yeah. quarter cup. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, anybody who wants to look it up, n e g g maker negmaker dot com. Okay. Explain it. They have demos. They also sell some very interesting deviled egg mixes. Um, I, I, okay. You don't like <laughs> deviled eggs? <laughs> we like angel eggs around here. I, I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> what, what, what do the kids throw at your house at Halloween? Really? <laughs> <laughs> so what else do you have on the, uh, on the future front here for us? Well, I, I have a list of unknowns that all come under the brand Klein. <laughs> <laughs> One of which. Uh, that's not predictable at all. <laughs> I haven't taken this one out of the box yet. It's kind of interesting. It is a digital level yeah. oh. with programmable presets. So okay. when you hit the angle you want, it'll tell you. Okay. And it's got magnets on it to help hold it, and it's really, really useful. Um, it's not the first digital level I've had for them. It's the first in that format. And yeah. You know them. They never make it worse. <laughs> always, always making it more fun than before. Those guys, yeah, just amazing stuff. Yeah. So, um, I will have some 
hand tools, power tools coming mm -hmm. from uh, both the Flex brand and the Skill brand. Ah, okay. And Skill has some compact straight line and pistol shape drivers mm -hmm. okay. that uh, you know what it's like working inside electronics when you don't have room for a full power screwdriver to get in there. Yeah, yeah. This That's, gets in there. The, the, the pistol grip is much better, yeah. Well, Definitely. pistol grip or straight, it doesn't matter. They're both smaller. You're not dealing with a giant sausage anymore. You're dealing with an oversized hot dog. There you go. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Tech Ed Connect, formerly known as the Westchester PC Users Group, that's WPCUG, will have a presentation, Holiday Tech GIF Ideas, Thursday, December the 1st at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, December 2nd, 2022, at 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. The website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, December 8th, at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom. The website is nyacc.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has no November meeting this month, but they do have a meeting Thursday, December 8th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m., virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is bcug.com. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, December the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, December the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza, West Brooklyn. Call 347-278-7320 for more information. The chill of winter has finally arrived. There are many less fortunate people who don't even have the basic necessity of a winter coat. You can donate winter coats to those in need at many of the donation sites near you. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy. Until we meet again, same time, same station next week.